With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I continue my 10-year retrospective of compliance. In this episode, I have with me Eric Young, well-known compliance professional, and he takes a look at compliance and enforcement in the banking and financial institution industry over the past 10 years and talks about the changes he's seen. A fascinating story, and I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, uh, back again for my continuing retrospective over the past 10 years in compliance and ethics. And today, I'm extraordinarily pleased to have with me Eric Young. Eric is the uh, CEO and founder of Young Enterprises, LLC, and he also has a side gig at Fordham teaching. (laughs) So welcome to Academia, although I think you've done it before. So, Eric, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, Eric, uh, you have been in uh, compliance and ethics uh, probably longer than anybody I know. So uh, <laughs> most of us came in uh, in this century, is that <laughs> phrase. But uh, the last 10 years, I thought, have been uh, pretty dramatic in terms of many of the changes. And you come at it from, uh, I think, a unique and different angle. So I was wondering if you might start with telling the audience where you were in 2010 and then what were some of the biggest changes you observed maybe over the next 10 years or so? Sure. So, one, you're right. I've been in compliance for 40 years. Um, and at 2010, I was in the middle of my career at GE. I was reviewing KYC and anti-bribery compliance programs over their healthcare, energy, and other industrial sales in emerging markets. So, I really got to understand how industrials worked as it relates to very near to our hearts, all of our hearts around anti-bribery and corruption and KYC, and they're not mutually exclusive, as, as I'll get into. If anything, the financial crisis um, really paved the way for a lot of the enforcement actions, if you think about it, um, over the past 10 years, because it was the financial crisis that led to not only what happened to GE because GE Capital became globally systemic, globally systemically um, important as a financial institution, they officially became supervised by the Fed, and that changed their whole approach to becoming uh, regulated, uh, particularly around. And if you think of what the Department of Justice is focused on over the last ten years, is greater proof and audit trail of monitoring that compliance is actually working, the, the culture is actually in place, and that entities have a much more robust data integrity and governance program. Those are the themes that you'll hear. Um, the good news is um, with COSO and the SCCE jointly publishing and promoting their effective risk-based compliance program, that's what many 
banks have long been expected to have, but of course, banks have uh, continued to be sanctioned by the DOJ and others as, as well. So in terms of uh, the regulatory changes, perhaps could you explain a little bit, many of our listeners are going to be very familiar with uh, the FCPA anti-corruption regulations and enforcement, but they may not be as familiar with financial institution uh, regulation. Could maybe you explain uh, that and how that may have uh, led to some regulatory changes uh, over the past 10 years? Sure. So there's essentially for a bank or a financial institution, we're expected to have three pillars of a financial crime compliance program, one of which, of course, is bribery and corruption. But the the more mature ones are AML and then um, the OFAC sanctions. And that's where a lot of the money flows occur. The third pillar is the least mature amongst the financial institutions. But as we saw and we'll talk about later, with Goldman Sachs, is uh, the anti-bribery and corruption program. The common denominator across each of those three pillars is know your customer. Um, If we don't know our customer and if we don't recertify the customer in terms of their activities, what's usual, what's not usual, there should be red flags and there should be uh, hands raising, not just by compliance but by the business, that something isn't usual. Um, And... With anti-bribery and corruption, J.P. Morgan, Barclays, they paid the price by allegedly hiring relatives of of government officials and, of course, of Goldman Sachs with the uh, Malaysia Sovereign Fund. The second theme in terms of, um, because there's two themes over the last two years, is is, um, poor data governance. And that's why when you look at the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, there's so much focus on technology, because regulators going forward and over the next 10 years, as you mentioned, is proof, documentation through technology, and ultimately predictive compliance risk analytics, not just what happened, but what does it all mean and what management going to do about it before it's too late. Eric, as I uh, looked at financial institutions, uh, financial institutions regulation, regulatory schemes and enforcement in the early part of the last or this decade, uh, I saw certainly KYC. What I and many in the ABC field did not see was how KYC informed commercial corporations. Uh, and when I finally made that connection, uh, I, I embraced it wholly. And uh, so that really led me to seeing, it, particularly in AML, how financial institutions were much more uh, mature in their compliance programs than typically commercial corporations. And so I was wondering if, if maybe you saw that, um, I don't want to say bleeding over, but how uh, one type of compliance could inform another and indeed lead to uh, greater maturity across all businesses, whether it be a regulated financial institution or a U.S. public company? Absolutely. It's a great question. And it's something we touched on last time, which is essentially around books and records and and following the money. And know your customers is one of the best ways to really understand What's going on with the source of funds and ultimately the the use of funds and what banks are required to do, at least annually, for high-risk clients, depending on how they're classified and the regulators are really scrutinizing the methodology of the risk assessment of a client, is um, 
are they the same client uh, that we opened the account for? Is the money that was told to us uh, what we're seeing in terms of the monitoring? And that's where the technology comes in. The benefit is if you have a high-risk client in a, in a low um, in a developing country, whether it be Latin America, Middle East, Asia, wherever the case may be, during that recertification process, you can use your KYC program to condition uh, activities of the client from a bank perspective because they want more money, they want to roll over that loan, so to speak, or they want new bond underwritings. And second, what I used to do is ask the client to do a self-assessment based on the World Bank's uh, anti-bribery and corruption uh, questionnaire, turn it into a self-assessment because it went through, if you think of the DOJ corporate compliance program, it's end-to-end and it focuses, and I focus heavily on how do you know your firm as an oil company, let's say, in Latin America, is, is in fact um, changing its culture around bribery and corruption, doing its training, and it's actually monitoring their you know, glossy corporate uh, ethics uh, programs about thou shalt not bribe uh, government officials. And we used that self-assessment and compared it from client to client, particularly in these types of risks, to see if they themselves got it, they themselves really were delusional or they really had a program. And and KYC really enabled us then to condition approvals or deny certification. It's it's so critical in, in the ABC program. Eric, you mentioned COSO. I'd like to go back to the 2013 COSO Internal Controls Framework. In a prior podcast, you talked uh, a lot about your uh, uh, evangelism, if I can use that word, or more robust internal controls as a backbone for a compliance program. And, and you talked about that a long time. For me, the 2013 Coastal Internal Controls Framework was, was literally revelatory because when I read it, I did not see internal controls for financial um, uh, purposes, I saw for, uh, internal controls for accounting, excuse me, for compliance. Was the uh, 2013 framework helpful or useful from your perspective in moving forward that discussion that internal controls did not belong in the back room with a bunch of people with uh, 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 black and red pencils scribbling down numbers, but it really was an integral part to start thinking about a compliance program? Yes. Now, was it revelatory? For me, probably not because, again, I'm dating myself here. I grew up with the actual books and records provisions of the original Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and when they were calling it internal accounting controls. And then it evolved into a system of internal controls. But They're all really derivations of each other. And I also grew up with compliance around the finance uh, and books and records network in which at the end of the day, if you look at all the sca- a lot of the scandals, one, they were followed by deregulation, two, fierce competition, three, those that weren't competing well would hide their losses, inflate their earnings, and then boom, you had um, accounting scandals. So by the time we reached 2013, the concept of the system of internal controls and uh, linking it to a compliance program made a lot of sense because 1991-92 FDIC Improvement Act focused around internal controls, certifications, and compliance. 
um, the Fed in 2008 had um, and continues to have guidance around compliance over large complex um, organizations, banking organizations, including Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, which centered around internal controls. So at least on the financial services side, the system of internal controls and the linkage with compliance programs were very much hand in hand. The question is, do banks actually follow it? That's a different issue. Eric, as we uh, have come into the second half of this decade, we've seen, uh, and even in this year, some uh, very large enforcement actions uh, by the Fed, by the OCC, around compliance issues. I think this is going to lead to some very interesting changes in non-financial institution compliance and regulation. But I was wondering if you might touch upon uh, the Citibank, uh, Goldman, not really a deep dive into it, but how we're seeing the Fed and OCC uh, uh, step in with, uh, I would say, not renewed vigor, but vigor. Absolutely. So, and, and I talk about this in more detail in, in my book, and sorry about the plug, which will be coming out soon. It's called Declaration of Independence. But I show over time patterns of deregulation and then ultimately a hope that the government uh, can rely on companies to have uh, self-governance, meaning the board of directors, and self-regulation, meaning the C-suite and the compliance program and other control functions. But to your point exactly is the Justice Department, the bank regulators are a bit tired of of relying on self-governance and self-regulation because the same problems happen over and over. It's called recidivism, and there should be a multiplier effect, as, as you know, as a prosecutor when there's repeat violations. The Citibank, Citigroup example is a perfect one because if you look over the history of the past 20 years and actually much longer, uh, they've always pushed the envelope. They've always tried to get strategically ahead by uh, loopholes in the law. Um, This time they got caught because they didn't have the corresponding controls, the internal controls, by the way, um, people, process, and, and technology to support their expansion or their aggressive strategies. Uh, J.P. Morgan, same thing. You'll probably see something similar. And it's end-to-end, top-down and across the organization with the role of the board. Are they challenging management? The answer is not enough. Is, are, they part, are they captured by management? The answer is probably yes. Is there investment in compliance and other control technology? I think clearly the answer is no. And then when you have large commercial or financial institutions that are all over the world, probably through acquisition with fragmented systems, how do you roll it all up so that the left hand and the right hand, and more importantly, the brain, which is the board on behalf of shareholders and stakeholders, understand compliance risks on a going forward basis. That's where the technology needs to come in, but you first have to have the overall system of internal controls in place. Well, Eric, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Uh, It's been a fascinating exploration of your views of what you've seen over the past 10 years, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Before we go, I was wondering if listeners wanted to connect with you to follow up on anything or find out more about the book. Where could they go? LinkedIn is probably the best place. I'm always roaming around there somewhere, and I'm always reachable through LinkedIn. 
Eric, thank you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Likewise. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm pleased to announce that the latest podcast series in the Compliance Podcast Network, The Wirecard Saga, has premiered. Originally, it was on the FCPA Compliance Report, but due to its popularity, I have rolled it into its own podcast series. Subscribe to it on the Compliance Podcast Network. It will be out on iTunes the first week in December, so subscribe to the iTunes version of the Wirecard Saga. We're going to take this as long as we can. I know you'll enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.